Hello and thank you for tuning into the Federalist Files on today's show. Chauvin found guilty, the Adam Toledo story, Maxine Wars violating the Constitution and AOC's constitutional illiteracy. I seen your reporting on Twitter. Okay. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Hey, but I seen the Project Veritas stuff from, from, about CNN. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, yeah, okay. How you doing today? Hello, folks. Thank you once again, as always, for tuning in. Uh, that. There, it's just a real funny clip from CNN, the hacks at CNN. They got caught by Project Veritas, and that is uh, just, I guess, a regular civilian asking a reporter from CNN, how's that, how's that, uh, how's that James O'Keefe story, Project Veritas story going for you guys? And just embarrassed. And there was another confrontation video with Brian Stelter, which was, it was kind of weird, because if you actually watch the video... With Stelter, he's walking around carrying like a weird handbag purse kind of thing, saying "I feel bad." It was it was just it was very weird. But first off, to get to the breaking news in the Chauvin trial, we had a guilty verdict from the jury. The jury deliberated for ten hours on this case. I apologize in advance. I recently just got some work done on my teeth, so I may have maybe a little bit of a lisp. I still have that numbing agent. On in my uh, mouth right now. I've tried to prolong as long as possible, uh, just to try to get some of the sensitivity back in my mouth. But I've been it. It has not really come back yet. So you had Chauvin, forty-five. He was charged with second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. Uh, this was today around 4 o'clock, I think it was p.m. Eastern Time. So this is very recent. This is some breaking news. So this is probably going to be actually the first show, because uh, all the other podcasts are already recorded today. I do, you know, I, I record at night. So this is actually going to be the first show kind of to break the news here. Uh, you're going to hear it here first, folks. So, so he's going to be sentenced uh, eight weeks out from now. F from th what this represents for our country and uh, for cops everywhere, really, uh, cops should step down. They should retire. They should hand in their badge, and because because at this point, all of the it shows that we are devolving into a mob rule like system. All of considering and and when everybody first saw what actually happened to George Floyd, and then they came out with the full video afterwards, the media because they suppressed the story purposely. They only they purposely cut the clip to try to push a a narrative. And during this case, like I said many times, the prosecution was making the, the case for the defense. Every single piece of evidence that really came out was extraordinarily damning uh, or, or was rather exonerating for uh, Chauvin. The amount of oxygen in the system of George Floyd shows that he was not actually choked. There was no windpipe blockage. Um, other angles show that the knee was not on the neck. It was on the back very top of the back uh, the amount of drugs that were in George Floyd's system was three times the lethal dose of fentanyl 
they were very, very amiable at first when they dealt with Floyd. They told him, hey, do you want to go in the back of the car? No, okay, what do you want to do? Um, they brought him to the ground because he actually, he personally asked to be brought to the ground. So they followed what he wanted. And it ends in this case where this guy's going to get probably the rest of his life in jail, if I had to imagine, maybe 30 years. Maybe he'll get out when he's in his 80s or 70s. But from what it seems like, everything that has been said now, and I was going to, I had all this show, I had everything queued up, ready to go, and then this news broke. I thought the deliberation would last much longer than just today. I thought this was going to continue into the week. So I had the show queued up with uh, that clip from Maxine Waters. But first, I just want to show, actually, I will show the clip from Maxine first. She goes on... uh, or I can go with the Adam Toledo. No, I'm going to go with Maxine Waters first. So recently over the weekend, she was pretty much calling for violence. If you want to list the standard of what of what uh, the, the media as well as the Democrat Party called for Trump to be inciting violence, then you have Maxine Waters definitely inciting violence. Uh, play five. We're looking for a guilty verdict. We're looking for a guilty verdict, and we're looking to see if all of the talk that took place and has been taking place after they saw what happened to George Floyd, if nothing does not happen, then we know uh, that we've got to not only stay in the street, but we've got to fight for justice. But I am very hopeful, and I hope uh, that we're going to get a verdict that is say guilty, guilty, guilty. And if we don't, we, don't, we cannot go away. And not just manslaughter, right? I mean... Oh, no, not manslaughter. No, no, no. This is, this is guilty murder. I don't know whether it's in the first degree, but as far as I'm concerned, it's first degree. Congressman, what happens if we do not get what you just told? What should the people do? What should protesters do? I didn't hear you. What happens? What should protesters do? Well, we we got to stay on the street, uh, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they know that we need business. So what you saw there is there's about three different calls to violence if you use the Democrat standard for what a call or inciting violence is. Uh, the very end where she says, well, we got to stay on the streets and we got to be very confrontational. That one is actually, uh, ironically, highly confrontational. That comment to make be- to begin with, because now what we're doing is we have politicians. This is no longer a separation of powers where the judicial system is its own separate branch, we have politicians getting involved in the judicial system. So we have the legislative branch getting involved in judicial proceedings in this case. And uh, I have a a clip of Alan Dershowitz actually briefly talking about this, how this can actually be considered a mistrial because there's going to be an appeals process to this. This is not uh, set in stone yet at this point. So there is definitely going to be some sort of appeals process for this. And the fact that Maxine Waters said this to begin with, uh, the judge should have called for a mistrial. I know the defense went forward. And I think, you know what, actually, I'll play the clip first of the of the defense with Judge Cahill uh, going for a mistrial. Play six. So per- pervasive that it is, I just don't know how this jury... It can really be said to be that they are free from the taint of this. Um, And now that we have U.S. representatives uh, threatening acts of 
of violence in relation to the specific case, uh, it's, it's mind-boggling to me, Judge. Well, I'll give you that Congresswoman and Waters may have given you something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. But what The argument, even the judge himself admits that this could, in an appeal, this will be overturned, but there's not going to be a mistrial from my position because he knows that there's people outside waiting outside this courthouse because the prosecution decided to make a spectacle of this instead of making it a private trial. They made it a fully public trial where people know who it is that's testifying. To an extent, people also know who the jury is as well. So this is no longer a private trial, so there is less security and safety. If these people were, if this jury were to say, to come down with a verdict of not guilty in this case, the jury would have to go into witness protection program. That that is that is how big the mob is right now. So now we are going, we are we are moving towards, we are devolving into a mob rule type situation, which is very very troubling, and can be existential to America. When the mob decides who's guilty and not when there is no due process. Because in this case, it can just, from, from beyond a reasonable doubt, it just cannot, when you look at the evidence that has been laid out over the last couple of weeks, there has to be a beyond a reasonable doubt that George Floyd murdered. I mean, I'm sorry, Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. And that's just, all the evidence just does not point towards that. So what I have is I have this next clip or you know what I'm going to talk about the judge in the Chauvin case. And I think it's important just to mention this. I have a uh, I have a post millennial piece as always everything's always going to be linked into the show notes below under the description. Then I'm going to get to this Adam Toledo case after all of this. So he said, and this this goes on to what Judge Cahill said. So this is him not claiming for the mistrial because he, he personally feels threatened physically by the mob. He said further, and I'm aware of that, and I quote, Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and about the unacceptability of anything less than a murder conviction and talking about being confrontational, but you can submit the press articles about that. This goes back to what I've been saying from the very beginning. I wish that elected officials would stop talking about this, this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to, disrespectful to the rule of law and the judicial branch and our function. I think if they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a respectful and in a manner that is consistent with their commitment to the Constitution to respect the co-equal branch of government. Their failure to, failure to do so is abhorrent but I don't think it has prejudiced us with additional material that would prejudice this jury. They have been told not to watch the news, and I trust that they are following these instructions and that there is not in any way a prejudice. A congresswoman's opinion really doesn't matter a whole lot, he concluded. So this is when he denies the motion for a mistrial. And once again, they are all, everybody collectively in this case, everyone is afraid of mob rule. Everyone is afraid of the mob. They know that all these George Floyd riots that they had over the summer accumulated $2 billion worth of debt and damage uh, and, and loss of life as well. I think something I wanted to say, I want to say something like 12 or 15 people died around that number. I mean, I mean hundreds injured, obviously. So they know the despair, the destruction that will transpire if they came out with a not guilty uh, verdict. 
So to go on, and, and I have an example of this, actually. I have, and this, I collected this yesterday from the Daily Mail. A severed pig's head is left outside former home of Chauvin defense witness who said George Floyd's death was accidental. So Vandal struck early on Saturday at Barry Broad's former home in Santa Rosa, California. They smeared animal blood all over the door and garage doors and left severed pig's head, a severed pig's head on the stoop. Broad has not lived there for several years, but it appears he was the target after he testified for the defense in Derek Chauvin's uh, trial in Minnesota. Broad claimed police were justified in pinning George Floyd while handcuffed. The reason they ended up pinning him while he was handcuffed is because uh, he would not get into the car. I'm just watching over on the screen. I see Candace Owen. She is just she's on fire on uh, on Fox News. I don't have the the volume up, but she's going off right now. And she's on Tucker Carlson. So what we have in this case is once again, let me just lay this out once again. We have a bunch of people that are afraid of mob rule. The mob is now ruling this country. There is no due process. There's no. This is not a republic. Uh, a republic would give principle of due process. In this case, there was no due process because of the interference coming from our legislative branch the media, of course, but there's really not much you can do about media, uh, but for sure the legislative branch unequivocally with members in the legislative branch telling people uh, what the verdict should be and that they should be confrontational, calling them to act violently if it does not go the way. They're pretty much calling, like imagine if legislators made a law and it was, it was unconstitutional on its face such as a gun confiscation. And they said to the mob, they said, well, if, if, the, if the Supreme Court doesn't go forward with the way, with confirming this rule and, and claiming it as constitutional, then we should all stand out here and we should be confrontational. That is the problem when there is now a co-mixture of the powers that are supposed to be separate. And that's exactly the problem with this. And now I have Alan Dershowitz, he's probably like top five, uh, legal minds in the history of America. He has something to say about what Maxine Waters said. I think he calls it something like KKK tactics. Historically, the KKK was known because the KKK was also driven by the Democrat Party. They were known to do this outside of courthouses as well. Uh, play nine. Well, when you have jurors who are being influenced not only by the evidence, but by fears for their own safety deliberately instilled in them by a member of Congress. Look, the judge should have had the courage to declare a mistrial, but he didn't, because if he declared a mistrial, there'd be riots in the streets and he'd be blamed for it. The true blame would be on Waters, but he would be blamed for it. This way, he's pushing it up to the appellate courts and saying, well, maybe there should have been a mistrial, but let the appellate court decide that. That'll be months from now. The streets will not be filled with demonstrators. It'll be a lot safer to reverse the conviction. That's not the way the system of justice should operate. We're not under the rule of law in Minneapolis. We're under the rule of the crowd. And, you know, when you think about the irony of what uh, Congresswoman Waters did, she borrowed the playbook of the Ku Klux Klan from the 1920s and 1930s. They would stand outside of courtrooms and they would threaten violence if any juror would ever acquit a black person or convict a white person. Now we're seeing exactly the opposite. We're seeing mobs outside the courthouse and we're seeing members of Congress, just like the Klan, had governors and senators and uh, very prominent public officials 
demanding verdicts in particular cases. And now we have a member of Congress demanding a verdict in the case. The judge was right. This violates the separation of powers. It insults the integrity of the independent judiciary. And, and, and Congresswoman Waters ought to be ashamed of herself. Which so he's, he is uh, absolutely right. He is, like I said, he's like top five legal minds. Uh, currently, right now, for sure, he's top five. So we're having now a breaching of the Constitution in terms of the powers, uh, the co-equal branches. We're having people in the legislative branch call for deliberations and call for verdicts in the judicial branch, which is a serious violation of our Constitution, as well as just calling for the if, if you want to say that Trump called for violence, then Maxine Waters for sure just incited violence. Uh, that same night, I think it was there was a drive by shooting of uh, National Guard members that exact same night. So now what we're looking at what I'm looking at right now on the news we have people all around. We don't know if there's going to be more rioting, more looting, or what have you uh, tonight. I'm not sure exactly. It looks like people are getting ready to do something. Who knows exactly what it is. But I just took a minute between the clip to listen to what Candace Owens had to say. Um, it was very, very insightful. She says, we've created through the media as well as our education system, we've created a country of losers. We've created this mentality, this negative mentality that the world is up against you, that you cannot succeed in America, that you are a part, a result of America. Your failure is a result of America. You are not to take personal responsibility yourself for your own mishaps or your own failings. This is the fault of somebody else, or this is the fault of America and its institutions, and you should reject the American ideology, American principle of the American dream. And she says this has been perpetuated in the media and also taught in our school systems. And because of this, look at, look what our school systems are churning out. They are churning out kids that are angry and miserable and blame everybody else for their own failures. And because of this, now there is a mob rule mentality because they are the mob. And they will go out there and do what the Democrat politicians tell them to do. I just thought that was very, very, uh, it was very insightful indeed, for sure. And, it just, and it's just a breakdown of our society. And that's what I was going to say in this show before uh, the verdict came out yesterday when I was planning it. We've had a breakdown of our society that hasn't really been uh, addressed by politicians in a general sense, they kind of do their virtue signaling, they fight, they, they fight for whatever their belief is. But I think that to fix America, you need to actually fix our society and our cultural standards and our norms now at this point, because we have deviated so far away from them. So this Adam Toledo story, is I, I have a story by The Sun here, uh, I guess it's like a Chicago news source, I think. This kid was called by other gang by gang members in the Latin Kings. Word on the street, from what I've read, uh, he's running with the Latin Kings. The kid's thirteen years old. Uh, this article is written by Megan Hadley and Ruben Roman. The nicknames that they had for him on on Twitter when people took to Twitter after this kid, this thirteen year old kid in Chicago, was shot by police. Uh, they had these memorial tweets. 
and they were calling him Lil Homicide. He went by Lil Homicide and Baby Diablo. Okay, so this kid's out at 3 o'clock in the morning. One of his, to begin with, he's also been branded, allegedly branded uh, with a tattoo, and they gave him a gun he's believed to have had when he was sh when Stillman shot him. Stillman's the name of the cop in the chest on March 21st, 2021. So allegedly members of the Latin Kings had been shooting at cars all night. And this officer was responding to the call right before he got there or as he was uh, driving. There was eight shots right before that. Apparently it's another individual. I forget the guy's name. I had it here. Let's see if I can find it. I did have it. I don't know what happened to it. It was, um, let's see. Oh, I don't have it. I forgot the name of the other guy. But the other guy was like, I think, 23 years old. They ended up arresting him as well for all these really weird uh, charges. And this is the problem that we're running into now. He's been, this, this same kid, I was reading stories about him being missing. His mom never reporting any of it. Uh, he was given a gun by somebody else pretty much to ditch. And the cop got to him, chased him down. Kid had the gun last second. He tried to ditch the gun and put his hands up. By, by, but by that time, the cop already shot him thinking he was armed. So I have a little bit of the clip here. Uh, viewer discretion is advised on this one. All right, uh, play eight. So this video, just to give a visual visual to people that are watching, or I'm sorry, listening on podcast. This clip, you have the officer gets out of a car, he's chasing this kid down. This kid has a gun in his hand. He has a firearm, it's a pistol. He's running down. I think it's a I don't know, I don't know exactly what the uh the make and the manufacturer is. He's running down an alley, dark alley. It is three AM in the morning. He ditches the gun last second, but he kind of um gives the cop his back and then as he's turning it is from when he drops the gun to when the cop shoots him it is 0.8 of a second so it's eight milliseconds what is what we saw from being shot so in this case a, a cop's normal reaction time from what i've read is something like a, a second and a half so this cop was preparing to be shot at when this kid turned around at him and and when he shot him from there on out he tried to give him medical attention, but I, I think he died very quickly on the scene. Now, the problem is, and in Chicago, they've been rioting over this. They're not happy. Me, personally, I don't think this cop's going to get anything. This is a legal use of force in this case. Just the, the amount of time given, the reaction time for the cop given, just shows statistically by analysis, by different studies that have been conducted on this, that there's nothing they can really do. Uh, in this case, personally, that's just my, I mean, at this point, <clears throat> anything's pretty much possible because it doesn't really matter anymore because mob rules the country. Uh, Democrat politicians run the mobs and the mobs run the country. We are now devolving into a mob rule-like scenario. And really the question is, what the heck is a 13-year-old kid doing associating with the Latin Kings and out at three in the morning? And this was a common occurrence. Uh, he would go missing 
days before apparently he's been he was missing like for two days straight and he showed back up at home apparently his mom doesn't call the cops say oh i can't find my son so this is a normal occurrence for this kid there's just really no accountability I guess from the from the parents, and and that's what I think is becoming wrong with our society. We've given too much power to the state. The state takes responsibility of your children in many cases, especially when it comes to this transgenderism thing in school. Um, the school will not tell. In certain states, the school does not tell the parent about this. The kid can show up to school and then change into a wig, and the school is not permitted to tell the ch the parent about what is going on with their child. So now we have the state. Is, is kind of taking over the kid and they're taking the personal responsibility standard out of the hands of the parent and i think that's kind of what our what our problem is in society i think it's also because we are like i said there, there is there's been this hostility or this this militant atheism people moving further away from religion and faith and that's where a lot of our morality comes from where it is derived from um i think that's also part of the reason why as well I think there's a lot of reasons for this situation that we are currently in in society. I think a lot of it has to do with schooling, the media, just our structure of culture. Uh, it exalts people that do wrongful or morally unethical things. For example, Cardi B uh, admitting to drugging, drugging and robbing men. And then she was like praised for it and they didn't press any charges against her. Um, what's the other one's name? The heavy one, Lizzo, when she walks around wearing what she wears. There's just so many things in society where we're now defending the people that have victimized uh, their community for years. George Floyd was stopped for a counterfeit bill. That's Once again, that's unequivocal. It was a counterfeit bill. Uh, the kid that was working at the at the desk, that got taken out of his paycheck. So what he did was he he asked George Floyd multiple times just to give him the money. Uh and he won't call the cops. George Floyd, you know, six seven. He's been victimizing the community. He's a career criminal his entire life. He hasn't he hasn't been on the up and up. He's been on the down and down. He's just continued to deviate um, from from a moral sense. And George Floyd shook the kid off. Kid calls the cops. And the cops handle him. They try to put him in the car. George Floyd will not. He resists them the entire time. Dude, six seven, like 250. They literally, with the handcuffs on, they still cannot get him in the car. He asks he asks to be put on the ground. So they put him on the ground. They're waiting for backup. The, thus, the reason for the knee that actually now looks like it is on the back of George Floyd. Thus, the reason for that. And this is, this is what happened. He was on three times the lethal dose, the lethal dose of fentanyl. He also had pre-existing conditions such as heart disease. He was on a bunch of other drugs as well at the time. He probably had a heightened level of anxiety and stress just for the situation to begin with because he was, uh, he was, you know, cops were detaining him and arresting him. And once again, like I said, 98% oxygen in his blood level, meaning he did not have any problems breathing in this case, even though he was saying he could not breathe. He could not breathe, breathe when he was standing up and they were trying to get him into the police uh, the Ford Explorer, and the closing argument from the from the prosecution was pathetic. Their closing argument, they went into detail about how he's so big and it's unethical and immoral to make him sit in a Ford Explorer in the back seat and like, like what, we're coddling criminals and it's just so ridiculous. But I'll tell you right now, folks, I do not have much optimism uh, for the future for our law enforcement.
been hearing stories about New York cops being told to just stand down, not even stop people in New York anymore. So I think there's definitely a, uh, a lot of problems that we're going to see in the future that are going to be derived and correlated with this future police reform that we're seeing, where people themselves, the citizenry, are going to have to arm themselves and they're going to have to enforce the law themselves, or they're, have to, they're going to have to be more reliant uh, on themselves more than the government, which I don't think there's a problem with being more reliant on yourself. But I think gun ownership rate is going to skyrocket, especially after this, because this shows that the cops cannot do their job without being prosecuted for doing their job. It's, it's like I said, it's a dissolution of our, uh, of our society, I think, that we're going to see ensue from here on out. So to change topics here, switch over. I have this Florida, well, it's actually kind of related. Florida Senate uh, came out with an anti-riot bill. And that is the Florida Senate. And it's it's written by, I'm trying to find the, uh, the source here. If I have it, I'm all messed up. I don't have the source, I guess. It's fine, I'll find it. So the Florida Senate on Thursday passed largely along party lines, a controversial anti-riot bill that was pushed by the GOP governor Ron DeSantis in the wake of Black Lives Matter protests last summer. The bill would increase criminal penalties for assaulting law enforcement officials while engaging in in a riot and defacing monuments and other public property during riots. Uh, it would also penalize local governments that interfere with law enforcement efforts to contain riots and set up a citizens appeal process when sites when cities and countries or counties try to reduce police budgets in response to riots the final vote in the senate in florida was 23 to 17 with one republican voting with democrats in opposition the bill passed the gop controlled house in late march democratic legislators argue that it would create a chilling effect on first amendment rights and restrict political dissent Republicans argue that it would protect law enforcement officers and prevent public disorder. Okay, so the way that the way that Democrat politicians, the narrative that they set up is that this is somehow a violation of the First Amendment by having stronger penalties on people that are rioting. A riot, by definition, is not a protest. It is not a peaceful protest. A riot is violent. It is tumultuous, and uh, there's also looting and destruction that ensues from a riot. It is not the same as a protest, but the Democrat politicians will label it as a, oh, they're going against protesting. This should have been straightforward, a 40-0, no doubt. This is just, we have governments now, the government is no longer interested with protecting, protecting the innocent citizens. We're now seeing this, this weird shift towards protecting the criminals and the citizens be damned because it doesn't even matter what you think anymore. You're going to vote Democrat anyway. The worse and worse the country gets, the better and better the Democrat the Democrat looks. Because the Democrats' policy plans are the government taking more control, the government giving people more, giving people more money, the government taking care of you. So the more and more helpless you seem to be as the citizen, the more reliant you are on government the more likely you are to vote Democrat. So there's a very slippery slope here because the Democrats claim they will take care of you. They won't take care of you. They say they will take care of you. 
the more and more government impeding on your life makes it seem like you need actually more government control to protect you. And then you, it, it's a very slippery slope where eventually it gets to the point where you realize the government's not in it to protect you. And by that time, your rights are already gone and they have all of your money and you are living a life and, and a, uh, a, a impoverished life that is not fulfilling. So in addition to Florida, legislators in Arizona, Indiana, Maryland, Minnesota, Mississippi, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, Virginia, Washington filed bills that critics say use the violence at the Capitol to target social justice protests more broadly. Many of the bills are similar or identical to the ones introduced in those states last year. The majority of the bills use almost identical language and suggest similar penalties, most of them establishing third-degree felonies for property damage, injuring a person, or obstructing roadways, second-degree felonies for destroying or toppling monuments, and first-degree misdemeanors of harassment for confrontations in public places, such as confronting elected officials in restaurants. The legislators also propose hefty fines and mandatory jail sentences from 30 days to four years, depending on the offense. The bills in Florida, Indiana, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Virginia, and Washington would redefine a riot or a unlawful assembly as three or more people partaking in tumultuous activity. So NBC tries, they attempt to, oh, that's who it is. It's NBC, this article. It is. I don't know if it's C, I think it's just NBC, not CNBC. So NBC in this article, they attempt to make it a little tumultuous activity. Like, that's such a broad term, but it's not really not a broad term. It's just violation of the law, injuring other people, property damage, obstructing roadways. You have a right to protest. This in, in no way interferes with the right to protest. It's saying, oh, yeah, you can protest, but you can't break out into a riot, start assaulting people, looting, uh, stealing people's things and belongings, or, or partaking in property damage really that's all it says so go on i got aoc's uh and this is her mentioning and this is this is great her talking about the supreme court how they were trying to add four justices to the supreme court this is a washington examiner piece it's written by brad palumbo uh ocasio cortez weighed in on the latest proposal from several prominent democrats in congress to pack the supreme court by adding four democrat selected justices to the bench to skew its ideological balance in their party's favor. Uh, this proposal is disastrous and dangerous in and of itself, yet the Congresswoman not only endorses the plan to overturn the Supreme Court into a rubber stamp, but essentially suggested that she doesn't believe the high court should, be, should act as a check on Congress at all. And this is insane. So she, according to Fox News, when questioned why the justices can overturn laws uh, about the justices, she said, and I quote, Justices can under overturn laws that hundreds and thousands of legislators, advocates, and policymakers drew consensus on. How much does the current structure benefit us? I don't think it does. <laughs> so she thinks, this is the Democrat Party talking about mob, once again, talking about mob rule. Legislators. Whatever we put out there is unequivocal. Whatever law we pass is unequivocal. You can do nothing to it. That is her position. Her position is when the legislative branch goes forward, puts forward a, a law, it is passed through the legislature, it is also passed by the president, that that law, no matter what anyone in the Supreme Court thinks, whether it's constitutional or not, is automatically a law. It doesn't matter. 
With these remarks, the Congresswoman misunderstands or rejects the very role of the Supreme Court plays in safeguarding our constitutional liberties. She decries the fact that the judiciary can overrule elected policymakers, but that's exactly the point. The reason we have a First Amendment, for example, is because our right to freedom of speech is supposed it's supposed to be off limits, yes, even for laws that hundreds of thousands of legislators, advocates, and policy makers drew consensus on. So here's another very important fact here. The Supreme Court historically has also had many examples where they enacted, in, in which laws were enacted by Democrat lawmaker majorities and then were struck down by the, legisl by the uh, judges in the Supreme Court because they were in violation of people's freedoms. And here are just a few that he lists here, Brad Palumbo, in the piece. In 1954, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, the court ruled that racial seg segregation in public schools was unconstitutional, even if it enacted even if it was enacted through a democratic process. So even if the people themselves voted for it, or even if uh, the legislative branch said, oh, this is okay, it is still considered unconstitutional, the seg racial segregation in public schools. So in the 1989 case, Texas versus Johnson, the court ruled that even if a majority of voters want to ban flag burning, doing so is an unconstitutional restriction on the freedom of speech, also the freedom of expression. Uh, in the 2003 case, so by the way, just, just so you guys know this, if that case wasn't overturned, right, then that means that lawmakers could have made a system set up where you would have to, no matter what, stand for the flag and put your hand over your heart every single time a national anthem played. Me personally, <clears throat> I am patriotic. Yes, I do stand for the national anthem. I, I put my hand over my heart. But do I think <clears throat> by authoritarian dictatorial rule from our government, people should have to be compelled to do so? No, I don't think so. I think that that is your choice to do it if you want. <coughs> If you choose not to, then I, it just gets to the point where it's like, then why are you here? If you hate the country so much that you're not, you know, but you have your right to do so. So in the 2003 case, Lawrence versus Texas, the court ruled that states cannot criminalize consensual sex between adults of the same gender, even if many voters and politicians wanted to. As doing so violates fundamental liberties. So the case is, if there's consensual action there, whatever happens, as long as it's consensual and there are consenting adults, there should no, there should be no issue because there is no effect that they have on anybody else. So if it weren't for the Supreme Court in these cases, you would have law by whatever way the legislative branch wants it to be. You would have no standing up or you would have no safeguard on the constitutional fundamental liberties, individual liberties of the people. So studying all the cases in which the Supreme Court has served this important anti-democratic role to protect our freedom would take years. Ocasio-Cortez's comments suggest that she thinks majoritarian support should should alone be the criteria for a public policy's legality. The congresswoman also ought to reflect on this given the fact that such horrors as slavery, segregation, and the denial of women's suffrage all once commanded huge majorities of public support. So yes, we've had uh, whether it's a majority or not, and, and this was the point of the Constitution, this was the part, part, the point of the separation of co-equal branches uh, in our federal, gov federal government, is every single branch is supposed to work as a safeguard for liberty. So if you had the executive and you had the legislative branch wanted to take away essential liberties from Americans, the Supreme Court can counteract 
uh, their legislation. Which is the point. It works good in some ways and then it works terrible in other ways because then it creates a super legislator in the uh, Supreme Court. And the Supreme, Supreme Court will rule overrule cases and they'll take away constitutional freedoms. But that's just because the Supreme Court now has been has been uh, politicized. Really is what the problem is. And too much too much power has been laid at the hands of government as well. So I'm gonna I'm gonna end here with a couple of a uh, couple of financial things, a couple of statistics on economics. If I can find my thing here, okay. So we have a Heritage Foundation finds the Heritage Foundation. They do you know statistics on economics. Highly intelligent people work there, like real wizards. Uh, they said a corporate tax increase will result in a $1,650 loss a year per household. And this is, uh, it was reported by the, the Foundation of Economic Freedom. A new study from the conservative-leaning Heritage Foundation finds that this tax increase on big business would ultimately be borne in large part by workers, heritage, macro economist Parker Shepard projects that the economy would shrink to the tune of 1615 or $1,650, so $1,650 loss per household, with the median worker seeing a $840 decline in their annual income. And this was just because the amount of money with a corporate tax rate this high, you would see people pull their money out of the economy and move it elsewhere. So they would actually take in less in taxes with such a high tax rate. And in doing so, pulling your money out of the economy like that, you're not going to give people the same amount of raises either. So Democrats, uh, they want to subsidize the rich, and they want to make you pay for it. This is a Washington Examiner piece written by Travis Nix. You have this representative. Uh, his name is Tom Su Suozzi of New York. Uh, he's talking about an uncapped SALT deduction. It's one of the biggest subsidies uh, to wealthy people, and he goes over it in this piece. If the deduction was uncapped, 57% of the benefits would flow to the top 1%. And that's what they're looking to do. The SALT deduction is in um, state and local taxes. So what you can do at the very end of the year when you go to file, file your taxes, you can claim a deduction as your state and local tax. So this would benefit big lib cities, left-wing states that have very high income taxes and, and uh, property taxes as well. You can write that off as a deduction, and you can in turn get a bigger uh, payout from the government. So really you have people that live in states like Florida that pretty low taxes in a general sense, Texas. You have people like that that are literally handing their money to the government so the government can redistribute it to the big liberals that live in New York City. And usually it always benefits the rich because the rich have a lot of state income tax taken out of their paycheck as well as a very high property tax because whatever home they own is probably very expensive and the land that they're on is expensive as well. So in fact, 25% of benefits would flow to the top 10th of the top 1%. So we're looking at like the top one out of 1,000 people 25% of the benefits of this new law proposal to uh, uncap the deductions would flow to the rich, really. Like the filthy, filthy rich. And 57% of those benefits would go to just the top 1%. 
uh, and this has been reported by the left of center Brookings Institute. That study is also in the P in the Washington Examiner piece. Now this would give these rich taxpayers an average tax cut of $33,100 and $145,000 respectively. So those people that are in the top, top, like the one out of 1,000 people, they're going to see $145,000 every single year uh, given back to them in this case, or they're not going to pay that much. And the top 1%, they're going to see on average 33000 So it's going to be a substantial break that they're going to get from this, uh, from this law. So middle-class households would receive little benefit from an uncapped SALT deduction thanks to the 2017 tax law. 90% of people take the the larger standard deduction instead of going through the complicated and time-consuming process of electing to itemize their deductions, such as the SALT deduction. In other words, the SALT deduction only benefits the richest 10% of taxpayers and is just a subsidy for wealthy taxpayers in high-tax states. So meanwhile, the middle class would be forced to pick up this expensive bill. Uh, Uncapped, the SALT deduction would reduce federal revenues by nearly $700 billion over the next 10 years. So we're actually, by having these SALT deductions, there's going to be a bigger payout uh, to these lib cities or these liberal states. And they're actually going to take in less federal revenue because of it. Now, this leaves the rest of the country to cope with this problem in, in one of two ways, really. To pay it right now with the higher taxes or burden future generations with more debt, print more money. Okay, so Biden has already signaled he wants to pay for it, at least with this new infrastructure package, with tax increases. And this dude, Tom Suozzi, uh, he said it could be, oh, it could also as well be job and wage crushing with these business tax hikes as well. That, that's another avenue that they might take. So the SALT deductions design also makes it easier for state lawmakers to raise taxes in the future. And this is actually something, I didn't even think about this. Since the SALT deduction subsidizes these state taxes by allowing the wealthier ta- wealthier taxpayers to deduct their uh, their state taxes on their federal forms, taxpayers will never feel the, the full weight of these high state taxes. Thus, these these states will not really be held accountable. These local governments will not be held accountable to mask these their high taxes and just continue jacking up the tax rate in their liberal liberal states. And don't worry about it because it's all a salt deduction at the end of the year, and you could just get that money back from the federal government. So what we're gonna have is we're gonna have big liberal states being paid for by people that live in Texas, people that live in Florida, people with low taxes. So it is no wonder why this Tom Suozzi guy wants to reinstate the full SALT deduction. His district has a median household income of more than $122,000. And that's nearly double the national average. And on average, a home over in his district is more than $600,000. He's he's just a wealthy, he's from the wealthy part of New York, I guess. So they will benefit while the rest of America loses in this case. So if he's really concerned about losing residents due to this uh, this state tax, he goes on to talk about Governor Governor Cuomo in this case. Let's see, necessary fund local services and hospitals. This is false. The salt deduction is a federal. Yeah, Sonny just goes on. He talks a little bit about how everyone says these federal taxes and the salt deduction helps out local services such as schools and hospitals and it's just really false because the salt deduction is a federal tax deduction so local services 
will continue to be funded by the local government. The SALT deduction is simply a subsidy that encourages local governments to jack up the taxes. And then in essence, they don't hand them. It's not like the federal government hands the money back to the state government. It hands it back to the rich people in this case. That's all that really happens. So that will actually conclude this one. It's not, it's not that long. I didn't have that much information except for the Chauvin trial. So it's a little bit shorter than it normally is today, like 10 minutes. But I have a couple quick ones. I have Ayanna Presley, and it kind of relates here. Ayanna Presley making $15,000 in rental income. Meanwhile, she's been going forward yelling, cancel rent, cancel rent. She owns a bunch of real estate that she personally has been renting out. And she her rental income in 2019 was $15,000. So that's just you know the classic... Uh, Classic Democrat hypocrisy there. Pauler back on the Apple App Store. Not really much to say about that. And then finally, Officer Sicknick that died from, um, he died from natural causes that they found, according to the D.C. Chief Medical Examiner. Uh, so you have the media run with the story this entire time that he was bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher. It turned out not to be true. New York Times had to retract the story. Goes to show that you cannot trust the corporate media hacks because all they're trying to do is paint a narrative and they have consistently uh, been trying attempting to divide this country so that will conclude this one folks everybody keep their heads up keep their heads high we have a lot of news that'll probably be upcoming in these next couple of days so make sure you tune into the weekend special once again i've been we've been doing those federal's papers we started those back up last one was on monday we're gonna have another one going forward on friday and then we're gonna have the weekend special coming out like sunday morning so i greatly appreciate everyone for tuning in please like share subscribe make sure you uh drop the mic on people let them know about the podcast i greatly appreciate it and i will see you all on friday thank you hey.